If you have a Bible, you can turn to John's Gospel, chapter 19. We'll look at verses 16 through 27 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page for you. Um, realizing some of the folks are gone who uh, I know liked the series Firefly. Anybody seen the series Firefly before? Sci-fi, yeah. Kids like it. Uh, yeah, Firefly, great series. Uh, one of those that were um, cut short too quickly. It's basically a space western set in the future. In uh, like the 2500s, people have left Earth and they've gone to another solar system and colonized all the planets and moons and people are flying around uh, doing bad things and good things. And so uh, Firefly, it's, it's fun. Um, the, the ship is a Firefly-class ship. The ship is named Serenity. The captain and his crew, the captain, his name is Malcolm Reynolds, Mal. And his pilot is named Wash. And so Mal and Wash, in one of these episodes, they're captured by uh, this psycho. Uh, he's a crime lord named Nishka. Uh, and he references, this, this psycho crime lord, references the writings of Shan Yu, uh, who is a self-styled warrior poet, also a psycho, uh, who had written in this fictional universe, he had written on torture, and he'd written on the limits of human endurance. And so this Shan Yu character had said, Live with a man 40 years, share his house, his meals, speak on every subject, then tie him up and hold him over the volcano's edge, and on that day, you will finally meet the man. Basically saying, you will truly know a person when he suffers, and when he's at the end of his life. You'll truly know somebody. If one is putting on a show throughout life, if one is acting, if one is uh, managing their appearance before others, their reputation in other people's sight, if one is sort of faking life, there are those terrible moments when that all stops. All of it's been stripped away, like when you're facing death, any mask would be removed and you'd see a person's heart. There are those ter terrible moments. So the villain in Firefly here, Nishka, he has this morbid fascination with torture. He uses all sorts of implements after he's captured Mal and Wash, the pilot. Uh, uses all sorts of implements and, and electrical shock on them. And he really enjoys prolonging their pain so that he can see how they act and who they are, who they're revealed to be. And Mal, he's the captain. He's like the main good guy in the series. He isn't paying too much attention to his own pain throughout this scene. He's concerned more for his friend. He's trying to help Wash. He's trying to keep him alive, trying to keep Wash fighting for life through the torture. And so suffering, um, maybe disappointingly to the villain in the story, suffering brought out the real Mal. He was still a hero, still and truly someone who helps. He's a real hero. Now, I'm not recommending with that... Um, Illustration: I'm not recommending you go out and torture people in order to develop real intimacy with them. That would be crazy. That would be psycho. That would be evil. That's not right. Uh, but there is something to the idea that, <clears throat> that suffering like that, coming to the end of your life, reveals a person's heart. And we know that. So maybe it's obvious where I'm going with this, since this morning we're looking at Jesus in his great suffering at the end of his life. Jesus at the cross. His was the greatest suffering, and it revealed his heart. 
He was always true his whole life, not just at the cross. He wasn't faking life. He wasn't managing appearances before other people. He was always faithful. He was always an open book. He was always honest throughout his life. And in fact, his death, where he faces this great suffering in the end of his life, his death confirms the absolute integrity of his whole life. What you see with Jesus is what you get with Jesus. But in case there was ever any doubt <clears throat> for anyone, here at the cross you know you're seeing who Jesus really is. And, um, and that means you're seeing who God really is at the cross. If you want to know Jesus, here he is. Here he is at the cross. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture together. Father, we're in so many ways not ready to look at Jesus on the cross. We pray that as we do so, you would enable us to take in his glory. You would enable us to see who he really is through your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand this word and to be changed by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into the four parts, one part for each soldier. Also, his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so when you read the gospels, you get the sense that something very important is happening here as Jesus is crucified. It isn't all spelled out for us in the gospel itself here, in the story. Uh, we need the, the rest of the scriptures to fill out our understanding of the significance of this event. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to know why he came into the world, how things got to this, this point how this is all part of God's eternal plan. And so we turn to the Old Testament to fill in the story for us. And then we go on to the rest of the New Testament 
for interpretation of it and application of this story to our lives. And as you explore the bigger picture of all the scriptures, it becomes clear just how important this is, Jesus being crucified. So we aren't going to have an all-encompassing treatise on everything that that was happening when Jesus was crucified, every aspect of what's happening here at the cross. But this morning from this passage, we we should see this. We should see how Jesus is the king of love, uniting us in relationship. He's the king of love, uniting us in relationship. So the scriptures, from beginning to end, they, they lay out all of reality in terms of relationship. In the beginning, humans were created and they were given to one another in order to enjoy relationships. And in the end, all things will be consummated in this delightful love, in the great high wedding feast. That's the story arc of the scriptures, the story arc of all reality because of God. The God who stands before all things as the creative source of all things, the one who's behind all things. He's a God of relationship. And so when he makes a reality, it comes from his reality. And he says this reality is about relationship. It's about love. He's one God in three persons. That's who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the God of love. He's the God who is love. So when the only reality was God himself, before he had created anything, before there was anything but this one God, when his reality was the only reality that there was, the the reality of God himself, divine relationship was essential to reality. Divine relationship characterized him. And it's because this one true God is relational that he created all things. All things exist because this one true God is relational, because he's the God of love. He didn't create in order to get love. He was trying to fill up something that he was lacking. He didn't create in order to get love. He created in order to love out of the superabundant fullness of his love, of who he is as the God of love. And he gave humanity, this is the way the, the story of the scriptures reveals it to us, he gave humanity the highest privilege of all of his creation. It's the privilege of being united with him, the privilege of being united with each other in him, in real love. In his love, the privilege of participating in his love and reflecting his love and sharing his love. That's the highest privilege. It's this divine relationship that this God has made us for. Divine relationship is meant to be essential to and characterize all of our reality. We are made to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And because of our relationship to this triune God, we're meant to love our neighbors even as we love our very selves. That's what it will look like when everything is as it should be in reality. Sadly, much of the Bible's history and the common human experience, is pretty obvious, show how we've rejected this relational reality. We've rejected the privilege of our created nature. We've refused to love our fellow humanity as ourselves. We're the kind of people whose, whose relationships, <clears throat> loosely called relationships, are more transactional than anything else. We're the kind of people whose, 
life in reality consists of the survival and prosperity of the fittest, and hopefully that means me. <clears throat> We're the kind of people who see others, who see other people like consumers see material goods. We're the kind of people who seek to control others for our own purposes, who manipulate, coerce, and fight, and betray for our own selfish gain. That's what kind of people we are now. We're the kind of people who, just to boil it down, we, we murder and we steal. We kill others and we take their stuff. Whether we're actually physically doing that or doing it in our hearts, as Jesus says, we're the kind of people who kill others and take for ourselves. All of this, all of this because ultimately we've rejected God. We've repudiated the, the triune God of love and his relational reality. We've rebelled against the reality and rule of the God of love. And when the God of love came in the flesh, this is what we did to him. We looked to exploit him, see what we could get out of him, like the transactional consumers that we are. And when we didn't get what we wanted, well, we didn't just discard him as useless. We taunted him, we, we abused him, we beat him, we marched him out and crucified him like a criminal surrounded by criminals. We mocked his rule, we demeaned his rule, we defaced and humiliated him as a person. We stripped him naked, we took everything away from him, and we waited for him to die. Is this what kind of people we are? We kill and we take his stuff. We'll even kill God in the flesh, take all his stuff. And we had the audacity to vilify him, demonize him, crucify the Lord Jesus, as if to say, he's what's wrong with the world. We're better off if we can just get rid of him. <laughs> we held Jesus over the volcano's edge, and then we dropped him in. And we got a real good look at ourselves in the process. We got a real good look at ourselves when that happened. In the crucifixion of Jesus, our own sinful humanity is revealed to us in case there was ever any doubt. Now you know what we're really like. But that it wasn't just the hour of our revealing. It wasn't just the hour of our being exposed for who we are. Infinitely more importantly, and absolutely more definitively, the cross was the hour of his revealing, his glorification. That's the language Jesus himself used of this moment. <clears throat> saw it earlier in John's gospel. It's the hour of his glorification. When he's hanging there on the cross, the hour when he would be lifted up and exalted as king for all the world to see. So Leslie Newbegin said, at the cross, Jesus reigns. This wasn't just a step on his way to rule. At the cross, he is lifted up. At the cross, he is glorified as the king who reigns. He reigns at the cross. In his suffering love, we see the God-man in his kingship most clearly. This is where we see him. 
We see his rule. It's not tyrannical. It's self-sacrificial in service. We see his will. And his will doesn't mean our diminishment. It means our welfare. We see his decree. And that's to reverse the curse of estrangement and to restore our relational reality. He's the king of love. And he's uniting us in relationships. Pilate mockingly gave him the title of king. He said, he's the king of the Jews. But it was true. Jesus was the king of the Jews. That word Jew, maybe you've never reflected on the etymology of it. Jew um, comes from the word for Judah. It's the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah, because Jesus is the king in the line of the house of David. Now, David, now he was a warrior poet. He knew the suffering of broken relationships brought about by sin. He's a warrior poet. The sin of others, sin, his own sin, almost constantly had him embroiled in, in bitter war, war throughout his life. So David, the warrior poet, he wrote plenty of psalms about these experiences But Psalm 22, which Tim read for our Old Testament reading, that's something different. That is something different. You should go home and just think about it for an hour. Read through Psalm 22. There is no record of anything in David's life that this psalm could be describing. There's no episode in his life where we point to it and say, oh yeah, Psalm 22 totally explains what was happening there. It's a prophetic psalm. It's looking forward. It's a psalm that has to be fulfilled in somebody else. It wasn't fulfilled in David. It has to be fulfilled in a coming righteous king who suffers the worst hostilities against himself in this broken world, who is unjustly taunted and abused and beaten and treated like like a criminal surrounded by criminals. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's so uniquely specific that it's sometimes called the Psalm of the Cross. You know, the cross wouldn't happen for another thousand years after David wrote this psalm. So, in our passage, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, pierced his hands and feet, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Because we're killing him here and taking his stuff. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So David wrote that a thousand years before it happened to Jesus. And that is not to marvel and say, wow, look how detailed that prediction was. How could he have guessed that? That's to say, this is God's sovereign will. All of history has been leading up to this 
moment. God has been talking about this and working toward it for millennia. That's to say, God wanted this crucifixion to take place. He wanted it, and he brought it about. And he talked about it beforehand, just so we would know this was his idea. Even though we're the kind of people who kill others and take their stuff for ourselves, God is, God always has been, God always will be the God of love. And he came himself in the flesh so that he could pick up his own cross and bear it and be crucified as the revelation of what kind of God he is. As the revelation of his glory, the display of his majesty, as the king of love. So again, Leslie Newbegin said, John, the gospel writer, omits any details which might suggest pity for the victim. It's not really a detailed account. It doesn't say Jesus winced and cried out when the pain of the nails drove through his hands and his feet. It's, It's omitting details which might suggest pity for the victim. On the contrary, the crucifixion is described as an enthronement in which the king gives the gifts of his bounty to his people. The title on the cross is a proclamation not only to Israel but to the whole world that Jesus is king. The writing of the title in the three languages makes the enthronement an international event. The king of Judah the king of love, he's the king of the world. And his first royal proclamation was to unite us in relationship around himself. The soldiers did these things, John records, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four women Contrasted with the four soldiers, strong fighting men who kill and take, plunder, four women. Pretty insignificant in the estimation of the world, pretty weak, helpless, standing there, watching, unable to do anything but stand there at the foot of the cross. That's what they can do while Jesus pours out his life for them. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus takes. He takes his family and he takes his followers And he gives them to one another. He makes them one. He gives his earthly family, his mother, to his disciple in mutual belonging because both are dear to him. Obviously, his mother's dear to him. The disciple is the disciple whom he loves. So he gives them to one another in mutual belonging. He says to his disciple, what's mine? My family is Yours, you now have my own relationship to my mother. She's my mother. And now she'll be your mother. 
here at the cross, I give you to one another. And that's a manifestation of the deep spiritual work that's being done at the cross where Jesus unites his people, not just to his earthly family, to his heavenly family. Jesus gives us in mutual belonging to his heavenly father because we're dear to him. Jesus says, what's mine is yours. My relationship to my father is now your relationship. Here at the cross, I give you to one another. And so his first royal proclamation is the establishment of the church. From that hour, which in John's gospel is always deeply significant, the hour of the cross, from that hour, our relational reality was restored. The disciple took Jesus' family as his own. From that hour, the king of love reconciled us to God and to one another. From that hour, Jesus' people became family to one another. From that hour, the ruler of this world, the devil, was judged and cast out. His power to rip people apart from God and to rip people apart from one another, his power was crushed. It was vanquished. The enemy's head was crushed at the place of the skull. And now... We've met the real Jesus. He's been stripped bare. He's hanging naked for all the world to see. And what you see is the majesty of his love. It's as strong as death. Even at this most terrible moment on the cross, the king of love rules. He rules right then, right now, at the cross. He cares for others, and he brings them together in his house. And so Rodney Whitaker says this loving concern is the glory that his death itself reveals most powerfully. From his place on high, his first act in office, he gives his people to one another as God's own family. And now there's a church. There's a people constituted by the king's word. He's declared it so it's true. An international people restored to the highest privilege of participating in God's own love, God's own divine life of love. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we know definitively that God loves us, that Christ's Father is our Father, that Jesus is our brother, that we are all brothers and sisters to one another in him. And so he said before this moment in John's Gospel, he says, just as I have loved you, So you also are to love one another. Love one another. That's the the strength of this king, is to love. And it's the glory that he's shared with his people. It's the highest privilege. And it's our real strength, is to love one another. It's majestic. And it's simple. We belong to one another at the foot of the cross. So just imagine yourself there with your brothers and your sisters, eyes fixed on the king of love pouring out his life for you, high and lifted up. Can you imagine standing there with your brothers and your sisters, bickering about the color of carpets? I mean, that's just sort of code language, right? 
familiar language for personal preferences about how we do things together. Personal preferences that we ought to be able to easily give up for, for the sake of one another, for love's sake. Can you imagine standing next to your brother or sister at, your, at the foot of the cross and have, having minor complaints against one another as you're watching Jesus, as you're hearing him make his proclamation, giving you to one another for mutual belonging? Can you imagine standing there, holding on to suspicions and prejudices and bitter grudges against one another? Can you imagine standing there withholding forgiveness from one another? Can you imagine standing at the foot of the cross wishing harm upon one another in your enmity? Insisting that it's your way or the highway. Refusing to serve one another or to share what you have with one another. Can you imagine standing at the foot of the cross where Jesus is, where he's given you to one another as family members? Can you imagine closing your hearts to one another? All our hardness toward one another, it melts away here at the foot of the cross. It melts away. All our selfishness and all of our disunity was crucified there with him. We belong to one another at the foot of the cross. That's where the king of love has united us in his family with himself, with his father, and with one another. And that's the greatest privilege of divine relationship restored to us. May it renew all of our reality in the King's name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've sent your son, Jesus, to be our king, and what a king he is, crucified for us, ruling and reigning over us, even from the cross. We're thankful that we get to see who he really is there, we see who you really are there, and that um, you know it is terrible and frightening in so, so many ways. It is good. You've given yourself for us, you've given yourself to us, and you've given us to one another in your family. We pray that that gift would not go unregarded or unnoticed. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you help us to celebrate that gift and learn to live in light of it the gift of your grace which has created the church in this world through the sacrifice of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.